This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 30 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The issue for today is about as contemporary as we ever can get. There's a discussion in the Talmud that's very relevant right now when we're just 11 days away from a national election. According to one of our sages of blessed memory, Rabbi Yehuda Nesia by name, quote, as the generation, so the leader, unquote. What he meant by that is that if a generation is virtuous, so will its leader be virtuous. It's the people who set the tone. It follows that if a generation is not virtuous, its leader probably won't be either. Rabbi Yehuda Nesia's colleagues, however, saw it the opposite way. Quote, as the leader is, so the generation is, unquote. In other words, it's the leader who sets the tone for the generation, not the other way around. They're both right in some ways, but Rabbi Yehuda Nesia's colleagues are more right. Either way we look at it, though, the bottom line is the same. We're being told that a generation gets the leaders it deserves. I hope that's not entirely true, given the state of leadership in the United States right now, but I guess we'll find out before the end of the first week in November, and hopefully not much later than that. Given all this, though, it's in order to examine what Torah in its broadest sense, meaning both the written and oral law, has to say about the nature of leadership. Our task, after all, is to demonstrate by example how all people should conduct themselves, as you've heard me say so many times, and that includes how leaders should lead. So that makes these laws relevant not only to how we must choose our communal leaders, but also to how we must choose the leaders of the country in which we live. The topic for this week, therefore, is leadership as Judaism perceives it, and what that says about election 2020. But first, let me explain why these laws are relevant to national leadership for we who live in the diaspora. For that, we turn to the prophet Jeremiah. After the first temple was destroyed and the first exile began, Jeremiah sent this letter, quote, to the priests, the prophets, the rest of the elders of the exile community, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, unquote. Here's some of what Jeremiah wrote to them. Quote, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles, Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, unquote. In other words, said Jeremiah, you may be in exile, but you still have to live life to its fullest. But he didn't stop there. He quoted God as adding these words, quote, And seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you, and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its prosperity you shall prosper, unquote. In other words, said Jeremiah, not only must we Jews have to find ways to live normal lives in the diaspora, we also have to work to help create a better place for everyone living where we live, Jew or non-Jew. We may have our own community, but we need to understand that our community is part of a broader community, and we can't live good lives if everyone around us is living in misery. One way we fulfill what Jeremiah was talking about is by helping to choose the right people to lead this nation. That being said, let's look at leadership as Judaism views it. In Ethics of the Fathers, in Pirkei Avot, we're told that the sage Antigonus of Soho used to say, quote, 
do not be like servants who serve their masters for the sake of receiving a reward, but rather be like servants who serve their master without the intent of receiving a reward, and let the fear of heaven be upon you, unquote. Further on in Pirkei Avot, the leader of his day in the land of Israel, Rabban Gamliel, said this, quote, All who serve in behalf of the community should do so for heaven's sake, unquote. Taken together, what Antigonus of Soho and Rabban Gamliel are telling us is that leadership is a sacred task. Leaders are doing God's work, and no one should ever seek reward for doing God's work. That doesn't mean a person doesn't deserve to be paid for his or her labors, but it does mean that no one should do that work for selfish reasons, such as to make himself or his family richer while in public service. Abraham and Moses quickly come to mind in this regard. Abraham, we're told, had openings on all four sides of his tent so that he'd never miss a stranger walking nearby who was in need of some sustenance or at least some rest. In Genesis chapter 18, he encounters three men walking towards him, and he rushes up to them to offer them food and a chance to rest. And I do mean rushes up to them. Then we see him rushing all around his camp to prepare a lavish meal for them, lots of freshly roasted meat and freshly baked bread and cake. And when it's all ready, he personally stands by the three men while they're eating to make sure that they have everything they want or need. He doesn't even ask a servant to do it. He does it himself. The Torah text in Genesis chapter 18 makes all that very clear. Yet Abraham never asked the men for anything in return for his hospitality. He was doing God's work and thus felt himself sufficiently rewarded. Earlier, we learned that his nephew had been captured by an invading army together with his nephew's family and all the other people the invaders encountered. Decisive action was required and Abraham took decisive action. He didn't hesitate for a moment to gather his own troops, 318 men at arms, the Torah tells us, and to enlist his allies and lead them all into battle against the invaders. Abraham and his army defeated the invaders, rescued all the captives, and recovered all the loot that had been taken. Then it came time to divide the spoils of war, and Abraham was offered a large share, but he declined the offer of reward. Quote, I have vowed to the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread to a sandal strap. Unquote. We see the same kind of selflessness in Moses. He too refused to benefit personally from his exalted position. Remember the sin of the golden calf? God was so angry with the Israelites that he threatened to destroy them all. But Moses not only stood up for his people, he did so in the face of a fantastic offer from God. God's offer is found in Exodus chapter 32. Says God, quote, now therefore let me alone that my anger may burn hot against them and that I may consume them, and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation, unquote. Moses talked God off that cliff, something he did several times, by the way. But a midrash expands on the Torah's text. Quote, said Rabbi Eliezer, Moses said before the Holy One, blessed be he, I am ashamed before my ancestors who will now say, see what a leader he has set over them? He sought greatness for himself, but he did not seek mercy for them, the people he was charged to lead, unquote. In other words, Moses told God that he wasn't in it for the glory or the reward, but for the service. 
His job, given to him by God, was to shepherd and protect Israel. To accept God's offer would be to violate that sacred trust and lead to his everlasting shame. Even if it meant standing up to God and sentencing his own descendants to anonymity, which is what happened to them, he told God he must refuse. Both Abraham and Moses share another trait required of a Jewish leader, humility. As Proverbs teaches us, quote, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, unquote. And the last thing a leader should be is an abomination to the Lord. Thus, we're told in the Talmud that there are three things that cause God to weep every day, including, quote, over a leader who lords it over the community, unquote. Again, a Midrash expands on what was said. It quotes God as saying to the would-be leader, quote, Since you have undertaken this responsibility in becoming a leader, go humble yourself at the dust of the feet of princes and those greater than you, unquote. As the Torah tells it, quote, Moses was a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth, unquote. Of all the patriarchs and all the prophets, the only one with whom God had a direct personal relationship was Moses. Yet Moses was a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth. The 19th century Hasidic leader Rabbi Moses ben Israel Polyer of Kobrin had his own way of looking at the matter of humility. Quote, a leader must not think that God chose him because he is a great man. Does a peg in the wall on which the king hangs his crown boast that its beauty attracted the king's attention? Unquote. Leaders may be exceptional people, he was saying, but they need to see themselves as just another peg on the wall, no different than all the other pegs. We'll come back to this in a moment. Yet another trait a leader must have is respect for the people he leads. The sage Rabbi Yitzchak put it this way, quote, The awe of the public should always be upon you, unquote. Rabbi Yitzchak demonstrated what he meant by recalling how the Kohanim, the priests, would bless the people at the temple. They would turn their backs to the temple, meaning they would turn their backs to the place where God's presence was most manifest. The Kohanim, said Rabbi Yitzchak, showed respect for the people because they, quote, had their faces turned to the people and their backs to God, unquote. There's more to be learned from Moses, though, when it comes to the kind of person who's qualified to lead a nation. Moses, in fact, is considered the paradigm for leadership. The Torah doesn't give us a stated reason why God chose him. But we can glean the answer from just the meager biographical information we're given about him when he's first introduced to us. Royalty in those days certainly always saw themselves as above the law, but that wasn't who he was. Moses abhorred injustice of any kind. We see this in three incidents that happen within a short period of time after he's introduced to us. In the first incident, Prince Moses came across an Egyptian overseer who was mercilessly beating a Hebrew slave, apparently for no reason, and probably he was trying to kill him. Moses attacked the overseer and killed him instead, although whether he intended to go that far is unrecorded. The second incident occurred the next day, when he confronted two Hebrew slaves who were fighting with each other. The third incident occurred during his flight out of Egypt, when he feared the wrath of Pharaoh for killing the overseer. Moses came to a well in the land of Midian and saw a gang of male shepherds harassing seven young women shepherds. He came to their rescue. 
As it turns out, they were the daughters of Jethro, priest of Midian. Although Moses didn't know that at the time. He got involved because it was the right, the just thing to do, not because of who their father was and any reward he might receive. In fact, he didn't even hang around. He left the women and went on his way. They had to go find him because Jethro wanted to thank him. Moses ended up marrying one of the women, by the way. Her name was Zipporah. As I discussed in episode 14, Moses had no qualms about speaking truth to power, as witnesses repeated appearances before Pharaoh after he returned to Egypt on his mission to free the Israelites, and also in his frequent challenges to God, including following the golden calf incident, as I mentioned earlier. God's offer to Moses to, quote, make of you a great nation, unquote, was presented to him several times, not just at the golden calf episode. On each occasion, Moses refused the offer. Moses never hesitated to challenge God. He did it at their first encounter at the burning bush. He did it when he had only just begun trying to convince Pharaoh to let the slaves go free. At that time, he castigated God for making matters worse for the Israelites rather than alleviating the suffering, as God said he would do. The qualities we see in Moses are echoed in the so-called King's Law in Deuteronomy. Here's some of what it says there. The king, quote, may not accumulate for himself silver and gold in great abundance, and it shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he must write for himself a copy of this Torah. It is to stay with him, and he is to read from it in all the days of his life, in order that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe every word of this Torah and these statutes to fulfill them, in order that his heart not be lifted up above his fellows, and he does not stray from the commandment right or left, unquote. In other words, the Torah makes clear that Judaism knows nothing of a divine right of kings, even if the king's appointment was seen as having been made by God himself. The king may not even consider himself above everyone else. His heart be not lifted above his fellows, the text says, meaning the leader, male or female, gender is really not an issue here, governs a nation of equals in the eyes of the law, and he or she is subject to the same law as everyone else. He or she also must rule for the benefit of the people and the nation, not for his own or her own material profit or those of his or her allies. The ideal Jewish leader must be able to withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous charges that will be flung at him or her from all sides. Our sages derive this from a verse in Exodus that reads, quote, And he, meaning God, gave them, meaning Moses and Aaron, a charge concerning the children of Israel, unquote. The charge itself remains unspoken. A midrash, therefore, seeks to fill in the blanks, quote, God said to Moses and Aaron, My children are obstinate, bad-tempered, and troublesome. In assuming leadership over them, you must expect that they will curse you and even stone you, unquote. They did curse Moses and Aaron often, but neither Moses nor Aaron ever let that turn them away from serving the people the best way they knew how. Very likely, the sage Rabbi Akiva had that in mind when the sages of his day wanted to make him their leader. The Jerusalem Talmud tells us that he first wanted to consult his family. The people followed him and heard his family advise him to accept the position of Nasi, of president in effect. But despite their advice, Rabbi Akiva refused. Quote, Should I do so even if it means being abused, even if it means being regarded as reprehensible? Unquote. 
Rabbi Akiva said no, but the answer is, of course, yes. Responsible and qualified individuals should take on the task of leadership, even if it means being abused. There are 11 days left until Election Day. If you haven't voted yet, you really need to do so, either by mail or in person. Remember, though, what Jeremiah said to the exiles in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its prosperity you shall prosper. But before you fill in that ballot or pull down that lever, give very serious thought to which candidate lives up to the Jewish ideal of leadership, or at least lives better up to that ideal. From a halachic standpoint and from tradition, our leaders should be above reproach. They should put the concerns of the people they lead ahead of their own. They should exemplify and spread the traits required of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, meaning they should be the models of morality and ethics in all that they do. They should not make themselves rich on the backs of the people they lead. They should not let their posts go to their heads and they should not let criticisms dissuade them from doing the job they were put there to do. One of the two candidates running for president fails on every point. His name is Donald J. Trump. His conduct is not above reproach, not by any means. He puts his own concerns ahead of the nation he now leads, such as worrying about how the coronavirus affects his re-election chances instead of worrying about the coronavirus and how it endangers the lives of the people he leads. In no way is he a model of morality and ethics in anything that he does, much less in everything that he does, and certainly not in the vulgar ways in which he speaks. And time and again, we see how he uses the office he now occupies to make himself, his family, and his friends richer at our expense. As for letting criticisms roll off his back, just read the tweets he puts out regarding both allies who disappoint him and his opponents. Donald Trump does not measure up to the qualities of leadership Jewish law demands. And that means he does not measure up to the kind of person we should want as a leader of this country. If we're supposed to show by example how lives should be led, one way to do that is to not vote for Donald Trump. What we should say to him on election day are the two words he's so famous for from The Apprentice, you're fired. Keep in mind, though, that if you choose not to vote for either candidate, you are still voting for Donald Trump. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.com www.shamai.org www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Don't forget to vote and stay safe.